there, I am Dr. Jason Ballara, and this is the Know Your Why podcast, where we explore the why behind success. Every week, I meet with real estate investors, veterinary entrepreneurs, mindset coaches, authors, and fitness professionals to uncover their why and how it drives them on the winding road to success. What is your why? should be live um i don't know like i said i don't know if there's going to be a delay uh or anything like that so we'll first maybe just wait a few minutes and do uh a little bit of an introduction because this is going to get recorded too and we'll, we'll release it as a podcast but um the this will give time for people to get you know sort of the notifications that we are live on the other platforms and that uh, they can join if they want to. Um, I don't know if if uh, we're seeing anything or not seeing anything on the, on the other platforms at this point. But uh, we're gonna do a, a no. not yet. All right. Well, we're gonna do a um, you know live stream Q and A hopefully, uh, and otherwise we'll just kind of talk about some of the sort of frequently asked questions involved in multifamily real estate. Uh, for those of you who don't know, you probably do if you're listening to this via podcast or joining on my social media. I'm Jason Ballara. I'm here with Rachel McFarlane. Rachel, I'm excited, is coming on board as uh, our investor relations coordinator. So um, you'll be seeing a lot more of her. We're really, this is very new and, and uh, this is the, your first introduction, Rachel. So thanks for thanks for being on and we'll do more formal introductions via website and um, some posts and things like that about your background. Um, song, we've lost your camera, uh, but I think that's just because of the. Oh uh, no! Yeah, oh, there you are. Uh, the internet is probably a little bit glitchy and and having trouble with three of us on, but that's that'll figure out. Um, <laughs> anyway, so the plan for today is to you know try and just go through some of the the commonly asked questions and, and um, maybe holdups or, or um, limiting beliefs that people have around investing in general and investing in uh, multifamily and we'll talk a little bit, we can talk a little bit about our fund, um, you know, kind of whatever. So we'll we'll definitely keep this under, under an hour for sure and, and if, you know, it's less than that then that's totally fine. Um, well, we are about two and a half minutes in. Are you seeing anything song on the, like, has it notified? I'm wondering, I guess I would have notifications on my. I don't see anything so far. This is our, of course, first time trying to go with this live stream on uh, through Riverside and it's supposed to go out to multiple platforms, hoping that it works, but this may end up just being a recorded session for the podcast because I don't see anything when I look at Instagram it does not show that we live live well maybe we just have to we'll just chat and record um, and hopefully if if anyone happens to notice that it <laughs> pops up live somewhere then we can have uh yeah we'll have a better chance at 
doing Mm-hmm. I don't see not on LinkedIn. Luckily someone can hopefully edit out some of this. Hmm. Alright. Anyway, let's just talk and we'll if the live thing happens, it happens. Okay, um, not just round. Yeah, exactly. It'll be it'll be a uh, we'll be able to get tech support after the fact, I guess, from Riverside and figure out what I did wrong and why it's not <laughs> working. But uh, and maybe it just takes longer to actually start connecting to the live platforms. Like maybe it's it'll pop up at some point here. But anyway, <clears throat> so mm -hmm. I thought it was worth starting with just kind of, uh, you know, what is generally when I start talking to investors or anybody, you know, about what we do, Oftentimes the first question and the first topic is, you know, what is what is syndication, right? People, most people know what real estate is. Uh, they they understand or they've heard or they knew someone who invested in real estate and they know that, that they're, um, you know, that person had an experience, good or bad. There, there's definitely people that have had good experiences through their own real estate investing. There's also been people that are like, oh, I, yeah, at one point I owned you know, a, a three family and it was terrible and my, I hated managing it and people were calling me in the middle of the night about their toilets and that kind of thing. And, and so, so there's different and varying, I guess, experiences within real estate. But a lot of people think that when they, they are considering or talking to someone about investing in real estate, that means you buy a single family or a duplex or something like that. And then you own it, manage it, manage it and, and kind of do everything yourself, which is an option for sure. But what what we do from a, a real estate investment perspective is, is something called syndication. Syndication, I think the easiest way for me, I, I describe it as um, a way for people to partner together, partner together, pool their resources and purchase assets larger assets, more expensive assets than, than one person alone typically uh, would be able to do, you know, unless you're a multimillionaire, billionaire, that you, you could possibly do it on your own, but it's not always the best use of um, resources to try and buy those large assets on your own. And so what most people don't know is most of the, the commercial real estate, apartment buildings, office buildings, storage spaces, most warehouses, things like that, most of that stuff is transacted or bought and sold through syndication. So it's not owned by one single person and then sold to one single other person. It's sold to a company that owns the asset and that asset is usually uh, oftentimes a syndication. And so within the syndication itself, there's kind of two sides of the coin. There are the um, active, partners and then there are the, the passive partners um, they go by different names but the, the passive partners are sometimes called limited partners there's they're the investors and I, I don't personally like the term limited partner because I feel like that uh, maybe implies that they're not important <laughs> but they're incredibly important to the deal because because generally those investors are, are you know bringing in most of the capital um, <clears throat> 
their the the limited term, just so people know, is, is really goes toward to speak towards their liability. As a limited partner, you have no legal liability. You have no responsibility for um, management, maintenance, anything, uh, any of these active portions of real estate. You have no um, participation or obligation as a limited partner. <clears throat> but again, very, very important to the deal itself. Um, on the active side of that equation, there are the uh, active partners, or, or sometimes they're referred to as general partners or sponsors. And those are the people that do all of that management stuff. They do, they, they find the deal, they purchase, they assemble investors, they find the financing for it, and then they manage the deal after the purchase has happened. So a lot of the stuff that gets talked about out there is often the, the transaction side of it, like what happens before you buy the asset. But um, equally, if not more important, is what happens over the next three to seven to 10 years while the asset is hold, held and how that gets managed. So um, that's where the returns come from. You make your money by buying a good deal, but you also make your money by managing it, uh, managing it well. So that, that's, those are the components of a syndication. In once that deal closes, you have, you know, again, those managing partners are doing sort of all of the work. Um, they're updating the investors, keeping them informed on what's going on. Uh, the the um, investors should be receiving, generally, it's it's monthly at least updates um, as far as how their asset is performing, and they are participating in basically all of the same benefits as the active partners. Uh, with that, you're getting you know participation in, in whatever cash flow is available from the asset, participation in the tax benefits from that asset. Um, we can talk a little bit about those those things maybe, but but on general terms, you're talking about cash flow, you're talking about real estate, or sorry, tax benefits, and then you're talking about um, appreciation and participating in the proceeds from the sale when that asset eventually gets sold. So that's that's in a nutshell kind of the, the pieces of the puzzle um, and how it is all structured. Uh, there's obviously a lot more that goes into it in terms of you know the actual process, but I figured I might pause there and see if either of you wanted to add anything or uh, throw out any questions that you've heard from people or have yourself um, just on that component, and then mm -hmm. we can go from there. Yeah. Yeah, so um, you answered most of the questions that I've encountered, um, but one that I recently got is how many units makes something considered multifamily? Is it four? Is it, you know, 50? Um, I guess people are asking kind of like, is a duplex considered multifamily? Is a triplex? Yeah, that's, a, that's <laughs> actually a great question. And it depends on, um, it depends yeah. on who's doing the considering. So from a lending standpoint, the, uh, the cutoff is, is basically five units. So, you have five units, uh, above five units is uh, considered, <clears throat> excuse me, commercial real estate. So, so below that, you're talking about, it's still multifamily even at a duplex, but it's residential multifamily. And, and most commonly that particular question is, is a lending question because for example, <clears throat> suppose you did want to 
you're like, I'm going to do it on my own. I want to buy, you know, I'm going to go out and buy a bunch of single family or, or duplexes or whatever the case may be. Some of that depends on, on where you live too, right? Like uh, in, in uh, where, I, where I grew up in Boston, at least when I was there, most of the multifamily was, was three families. That was, that's how Boston is kind of built. It's three family vertical stacked units. Um, <clears throat> it was, yeah. There was almost none of the sort of large scale multifamily complexes that we're talking about when, when we were you know, purchasing with, with our buy box, but it's still multifamily. I, at one point I owned a three family in Boston. So, <clears throat> but from a lending standpoint, when you buy those, you're going to be buying generally as, a, uh, as yourself, right? You're gonna be purchasing under your own name Maybe you have a family trust, something like that. But but generally, it's going to be in your own name. And the the rule of thumb is the first, and people say the first four that you buy under your own name, pretty easy, pretty standard. You're going to have the same lending type of principles that you would have for purchasing your own home. Um, and you have some of those advantages, like if you're buying your own residence, even if it's a multifamily, you might be able to qualify for an FHA loan, which gives you the ability to have mm -hmm. um, a much lower down payment if it's if it's uh, owner occupied. So there's there are ways to, to do it that can be advantageous, but um, ultimately, <clears throat> I I have been told the first four fairly easy to get the to get the loans based on that, and then it starts to get harder and harder. And typically, most traditional lenders will not lend to you once you get to ten. Right, so if people are trying to scale and they get to 10, whether that's single family, duplex, triplex, some of these um, residential multifamily, you're gonna start to reach a point where people won't lend for, won't lend to you anymore because they'll, they'll look at it as kind of being overextended. <clears throat> at that point, mm -hmm. and these are generalizations, like you oftentimes, like there are ways around this, you can find seller financing, like there are other creative things to do, but but generally you're gonna have a limit to the number of bank loans in your own name that you can have. And also those loans are typically what we call recourse. So they would be um, taking into account your own, you know, your, your, uh, your, your own income. They're gonna, they're gonna potentially um, be taking your own home as, or not taking it, but using your own home as or business as collateral, exactly. Like something that, that would be kind of on the hook if you defaulted. When we get into the larger uh, commercial multifamily, and again, it still does break down into size. So they actually have uh, what they call like small commercial loan lending versus, especially if you look at agency loans, which is government-backed loans, they have small commercial lending versus large balance commercial lending. And in fact, the bigger the loan is, the bigger the asset is, like from a monetary standpoint the banks as well as us as sponsors consider that safer and so you can actually get typically a better rate better terms and higher leverage on a um, larger asset than you would on a smaller asset because again economies of scale <clears throat> the banks who quite frankly the bank is going to be your single biggest investor in whatever deal you're doing because they're going to cover 60 to 75 percent of that that uh, purchase price so those banks like the economy of scale so if you're purchasing it sounds crazy but like if you're purchasing 
a $70 million apartment complex versus a $7 million complex, you're going to have far more favorable terms on that $70 million complex than you would on the smaller one, which I think to a lot of people is probably probably counterintuitive. It was it was to me. I, I thought, you know, sort of, <clears throat> excuse me, smaller was safer, but but it makes sense now that I know how these operate. It's it's like, um, you know, not only do you have economies of scale, you have a the larger the asset, you have a larger safety margin in terms of if we just look at, say, uh, vacancy. Right. So if you have if you own a duplex and one person moves out, you're at 50 percent vacancy. Right. Yeah. But if you own a 400 unit apartment complex, you have to have 200 people move out to get to a 50 percent. Mm -hmm. And that just doesn't happen. Right. So like you could have 20 people move out and you're still at a very reasonable um, occupancy number for those larger complexes. And, and it's not going to. Um, you know, hurt you tremendously from a revenue standpoint. So I, I think that's kind of a long winded answer, I guess, to that. But um, most of the time that question gets answered by the lender. And so typically that cutoff is is five units. And, and we I mean, I guess that goes into, you know, what what our buy box is currently and, and we're looking for greater than 100 units because <clears throat> Again, the the higher we go in in unit count, the better our um, the better we can optimize economies of scale, staffing things like that. Like if you have, again, and this is from personal experience. Like we have an asset that's seventy units. We also have an asset that is ninety units. Even that difference in twenty units makes a tremendous difference in terms of how effective the the revenue uh, management can be because you have so if you had exactly the same amount of vacancy in terms of absolute number like if you have 10 vacancies well your actual vacancy percentage is much higher on that 70 unit than it is on the 90 unit and you have mm -hmm. um, oftentimes it comes down to like staffing right so typically somewhere at some point in size, you're going to have one on-site manager and you're going to have one maintenance person. And that typically works right around 100 units. Smaller than that, you still kind of need to have someone on site. So you have to pay them, but you're, you're on a per unit basis, you're actually paying a higher salary. Right. So if, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. So it's it, it the economies mm -hmm. of scale are, are very, very real. And that's just talking about, you know, sort of on site operations. But if you look at um, from a renovation perspective. Right. So uh, if you're renovating, if you have a, a duplex and you're renovating those units, you're probably going to go to Home Depot and you're going to buy stuff off the shelf and you're going to go in and do you yeah. know, kind of one unit at a time. If I'm have a you know a 400 unit complex, we're probably renovating 20 or 30 units a month, and you're buying things in bulk directly from supplier, and that's going to save tens of thousands of dollars on your material cost alone. Yeah. Not to mention your contractors are going to be um, very happy with volume versus say like coming work. in and do one unit. It's not worth it for them to 
charge less to come in and, f and renovate one unit for you. Then, then they're basically the same as like a, a custom home builder. So you have in the construction world, which and and I've I've been in construction since I was a teenager, and it's it's a very different um, strategy in multifamily versus you know like people that are renovating single family homes and custom home builders. Now you're building as a custom home builder, you're building someone's dream house. You know, like like budget matters, but people are like, yeah, I really like that tile that costs thirty dollars a square foot. Like. And, and they do it because that they're like, this is my house, I'm gonna live there. When we're talking about renovating multifamily, it, it is very much about kind of standardizing it to appeal to the largest number of people and maximizing, uh, or, or I guess minimizing the, the costs associated with that. So it's like, yeah, yeah, if we're putting tile, it's gonna likely be subway tile or, you know, something just <laughs> the, the flooring, you know, again, if you can buy 10,000 square foot of flooring versus a thousand square foot of flooring, it's going to cost you way less on a per square foot basis. You can also arrange, you can have the ability to negotiate pricing with vendors based on volume. So it's like, hey, I'm going to use this, this particular floor installation company for all of my properties. And if I have, like, if, if I'm someone who has thousands of units, I can tell you the pricing on that flooring install is is way lower than someone that's trying to renovate you know their duplex or something like that so again long-winded mm -hmm. answer but but that's that's kind of the reason why scale matters and it, it's when I uh, you know song song knew this because I talked to her about it but like when I first decided back in 2020 that I wanted to do real estate more than just as kind of like on my own houses, you know, on a, on a very small scale. The first thing I looked at was was actually residential rentals. And uh, I looked at Atlanta because I liked the market. That's where we ended up focusing our multifamily investing as well. But um, I, I started thinking about it and it was like, okay, so how long and how much work will it take me to find, purchase and manage a hundred single family houses or even 50 duplexes, right? Like that could take years, but how long does it take me to go oh, buy a hundred apartment units? Like a couple months. So it, it's just an, and for that a hundred apartment, hundred unit apartment complex, I can have an on-site manager and I don't have to be the one that's like, oh, you know, Mrs. Smith called and said, her, her toilet's clogged or, you know, this, we have a leak here or whatever. Like mm -hmm. we have, it's a business now. It's no longer just, you know, kind of a, a hobby, you know, sort of real estate investing hobby. It's a true business. And, and that's how these large assets get purchased. The syndication is a company that we form an LLC for each property that owns that property. And so it is truly you're, you're buying a business each asset is a business so it, it's it, and it's able to be treated that way because you have scale yeah that, yeah, that answer that answer question super long way i've had people ask me yeah no yeah. i've had people um ask about number one how long is your money tied up in the investment you know as long as you're willing to pay 
you know, fees and taxes, you can go in and cash out on your stocks, right? And your bonds. Um, so how long is your money tied up here? Are you able, is it liquid? Are you able to pull it out as you need it? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And, and honestly, one of the, it, it tends to be one of the objections that I hear about is the illiquidity of real estate. But um, I actually think, it, I actually think it's probably a good thing, but also um, I think that, that you have to kind of reframe how you look at that. So a couple of, the, the answer to the question, mm -hmm. the specific answer to the question is um, the typical hold time is generally around five years. Like that's typically the hold time. It might be three years, it might be five years, some deals it's gonna be 10 years for different reasons. And so you have to look, to, to answer that specific question, you have to look at whatever offering summary you've been presented for the deal. Like specifically for our fund, we're looking at a five to seven year hold time. That that's kind of the the, the projection on our fund. But but yeah, some people, if you're doing like um, for example a development deal, typically those are going to be maybe two or three years because if the business plan is to to build and then lease up and sell, which is a common business plan that yeah. takes two to three years. And so those investors in those deals typically are gonna get virtually no cash flow through the life hold the, for, for the hold of the deal, but then they're gonna make a big return when it sells. And so it, in, mm -hmm. in tangent to your question about like the hold time, you also, you have to decide what's your, like, what do you want your hold time to be? You, I mean, you could go out and be yeah. a private money lender to house flippers and the hold time, you're, the money is gonna be tied up for six to 12 months. And, and that's a much shorter hold time. But, but the reason why I, I see the illiquidity of, of real estate as a, as a good thing is because you don't actually lose any money until you sell, right? So if we hit a market downturn, which we did, if we don't sell, mm -hmm. we don't lose any money. On paper, sure, the valuations have gone down recently, but the thing is that's yeah. generally tied into the interest rates. So the projections now are interest rates are gonna come back down over the next year to 18 months, if not more. And so mm -hmm. that's gonna, the valuations are gonna come back up because a lot of this, as I mentioned before, a lot of this, uh, your largest investor is the lender. So if the lender is putting up, you know, 75% at 3% interest rate, which is what was happening two years ago, versus seven or 8% mm -hmm. interest rate, which is what's happening right now, that changes what you can yeah. purchase that asset for, because you've got to pay that lender through the whole time, right? So, so a lot of the changes in, yeah. in values right now have been related to, to interest rates. But if you don't have to sell, and then the interest rates come back down like it, nothing. So so being yeah. illiquid isn't necessarily a bad thing. The other thing that I think is kind of ironic about people objecting to that is, so traditionally, so many people, their retirement plan is 401k and IRAs, right? Like that's the thing that people know about and they do it because they're told that they should do that. Well. You can't touch that until you're in your 60s. So that's pretty illiquid as well, and people do it without a, th a second thought. So it's, 
it, it's kind of ironic to me that the people will do that, but then don't like a five-year hold time on a real estate investment. The other, mm -hmm. I guess, twist on that mm -hmm. is you can use a self-directed IRA and invest in real estate. And so now your sort of illiquid concerns are completely gone because it was already an illiquid account that you had and now you're just putting it into real estate so you can diversify from I don't think people shouldn't invest in stocks that's fine I don't <laughs> like I invest in stocks but there's yeah there's differences and, and reasons why you might want to consider both but but the hold time is mm -hmm. uh, is based on the specific deal right so there's like I said there's those development deals the flip side of it is like for example um, a really hot thing a couple of years back was opportunity zones opportunity zones were um, uh, I guess underdeveloped portions of the country there's there's a, there's a map you can look it up there's a map that's like here are all the opportunity zones that were defined by the government and if you invested in a opportunity zone deal you could actually sell off stocks or some other asset and take that money and roll it into an opportunity zone deal and you wouldn't pay any capital gains on that those other asset sales until mm -hmm. 2026 also the basis for that capital gains tax was decreased I believe it was by 10% um, and that might have been a scaling thing I don't know I know by the time I got into one it was 10% but it might have been even more if you had gotten into the opportunity zone deals earlier um, and so those taxes are deferred so so I'll you I did this I sold off a bunch of stock invested in an opportunity zone deal in 2026 I'll have to pay the taxes but at a reduced rate based on what I made off those stocks okay so but the but the really great thing about opportunity zones is that they have uh, if you have a if you hold them for 10 years there is no capital gains tax at sale of that asset right so imagine we're talking about assets that are tens of millions of dollars and so think about the tax the capital gains tax on that sale is millions of dollars so when that sells mm -hmm. after 10 years and that capital gains tax is gone that's millions of extra dollars that are going to the investors in those deals so the, the government incentivized people to, to develop these portions of the country for exactly this reason. And, and this is why tax people, tech, uh, real estate investors get favorable tax treatment is because there's government incentives to provide housing and jobs mm -hmm. and uh, develop areas that are, um, you know, kind of underserved. So it the whole time is going to depend on the deal that that's very much and you have to it's true like it's an illiquid asset there are actually kind of loopholes that you can get out of these deals if you absolutely have to but it's a lot like if you pulled your money out of a 401k or IRA you're gonna probably lose money so it's a um, there are ways to do it but it's um, not not encouraged uh, the other I guess that that kind of segues into another good thing to bring up is that all of these all syndications are um, governed by the SEC so uh, there are very very strict regulations about you know how these things have to be handled anyone who invests in a syndication will 
um, you, you better better make sure that that sponsor gives you what's called a PPM or a private placement memorandum. Um, the PPM is a really, really long legal document and it's very scary because it's literally just, these are the risks of investing over and over and over again. Like it'll say the same risks four or five times in the thing. And so um, if you've never seen mm -hmm. one before, it is absolutely, it's daunting the first time. I, the first time I saw one, I was like, what is this? <laughs> like, it's just so long too. Nobody wants to read a 70 or 90 page document. Um, once you get familiar with them, you realize that it's just the same stuff over and over again, and it's probably about four pages mm -hmm. worth of reading. But again, like these are things that if you invest, you're investing in a deal, especially as a first time sponsor or sorry, a first time investor, you should, if you have concerns, you should be able to go to that person who's the deal sponsor, that general partner and say, hey, can you can you walk through this with me? Can you walk through? Uh, some of the portions of this PPM. Um, I have done that with investors. I mm -hmm. recorded it. We, we spent like two hours and I literally went through the whole thing because it is, it's daunting. And if you don't have a legal background, it's the, it's very, it's written by SEC attorneys. It's written it's, in legalese. <laughs> yes, it is. Very, <laughs> it is very comprehensive. It, <laughs> it'll have, you know, all of the the deal metrics and stuff it'll it'll have it broken down into legalese where usually you'll get you know if you're thinking about investing in a deal you're going to get an offering memorandum which breaks that all out much more simply but then the the attorneys take that offering memorandum and make it you know three times as long by adding legalese to it so it it's uh it's daunting but it is um it's it's a good thing because the the penalties for not being uh, compliant are at minimum a fine to the sponsor um, also you can go to jail and i have no intention of going to jail so i'm doing these <laughs> these things are going to go exactly right like the, the there's no uh, there's no point taking these chances like the whole the whole point of this for from my perspective is family so if i have to go to jail because i it's going to take me away from my family. So I don't, I don't mess around with that. We have an SEC attorney. Um, I know a number of them because they've been on the podcast. So it's like very easy to find out the answers to the questions um, and, and be in compliance. Yeah. So yeah, and a bit, bit of a long-winded answer, but I feel like those things are, are worth mentioning, especially for anyone who's kind of uh, mm -hmm. looking at this to be a, you know, FAQ for their, you know, their first deal or, or what they, you know, what they might need to know. What else? Any, mm -hmm. anything else? Along that those you've... lines. Yeah. yeah. With the SEC, what, what are some of the first few questions you would, if you're a new investor, you would want to ask the, the person managing or the active investor what would you want to ask them in order to make sure that they're um, maybe following rules and regulations uh, to the best of their ability? Yeah, um, I think it's it's you can ask them who their SEC attorney is so that you could actually do a search and um, find find that they're actually a, a true SEC attorney that they've done. They've done this before. Um, you can ask to see the a copy of the PPM so they can see that it's all written out all of the um within the ppm typically at least in ours 
it actually you know kind of talks about the the, the structure of some of the laws associated with it um, I think it's it's you also want to ask them you know have they ever had any issues uh, I, I guess judgments against anything that would have come up um, in actually having to deal with this like directly have some sort of communication with the SEC um, I think it's something that fortunately you know sponsors don't want to go to jail that's not <laughs> nobody's looking to do that and so I think that tends to be um, as long as someone is is giving you a PPM and they're and being you know kind of upfront that these are the the things that need to happen for you to be able to be an investor in the deal um, I think that's a pretty good indicator the other thing so here's the one that that, that probably gets a little bit slippery for people sometimes is um, the accredited versus the non-accredited investors and that's that's probably the biggest rule that people get hung up on or get in trouble for when it comes to the SEC and these investments so there's there's multiple different avenues that a syndication can be can be um, formed but most of the time most commonly it's going to be regulation D 506B or 506C. There are others. There's uh, regulation crowds, regulation CF, which is crowdfunding. So, like, if you go online and you are looking at, I forget some of the websites, but there are some websites where you can invest in real estate, and they're like, get in, get involved in real estate, you know, for only a thousand dollars or whatever it is. Like, you can you can invest in real estate the same way you invest in stocks, and it'll be online. Um, I have opinions about those, but. <laughs> That, that that's a, an entirely different discussion uh, the, there's another one there's regulation a which is um, you can go through uh, a pretty intense uh, legal process to make it so that your company can put out offerings to anybody whether they're accredited or not accredited because you've sort of done the work ahead of time to have your company as a whole be um, within that regulation a uh, criteria but it costs like hundreds of thousands of dollars to do it and it and it takes like six to twelve months and so most people don't do that unless they're like a, a huge syndication company um, <clears throat> the example that comes to mind is, is Grant Cardone like he's a he's a big name is people people uh, know him he does a lot of marketing he's done a ton a ton of real estate um, and I believe that all of their deals, deals are Regulation A, so, so literally anyone can invest in them, unaccredited or accredited, because they've done all of that stuff kind of ahead of time. But most commonly, mm -hmm. um, the syndications are going to either be 506B or 506C. The, the main differences here are 506B, you can have accredited investors and up to 35 non-accredited investors in those deals just for quick definitions accredited and, and, and there are more things that qualify as accredited but the main definitions that get used are um, salary based and net worth based so if you make two hundred thousand a year uh, as a single person or three hundred thousand a year as a uh, married couple 
then you would qualify as accredited based on salary or if you have a net worth of one million dollars uh, not including your your primary residence so um, there's those are kind of the two main and, and they're actually I believe looking at upping those numbers potentially uh, especially the net worth thing um, I'm not sure exactly where they're in that process but but as I know this of this date that's that's where the the being accredited um, most commonly falls it also like you're accredited if you work for a company that does what we do like there's other little loopholes you can also get um, uh, reg, uh, sorry certifications and licenses to sell securities mm -hmm. and if you go through those processes and take those tests you're accredited there's my understanding is there may eventually also be a test that someone could take just as like a regular person to qualify themselves as accredited that's been discussed as well but again most commonly and, and the as point of now, is to is that salary... prove that you i'm sorry <laughs> i said and the, the point understand. of that is just to prove that you're you're knowledgeable and you understand what you're getting yourself right. into yeah. it it yeah it's to prove that you understand that there are risks involved in investing um, as an aside, I hate these rules because the you can invest in the stock market. Anyone can invest in the stock market in any stock they want and can lose all their money without being accredited. You can get a, yeah. you can go right now on your phone, yeah. get a Robinhood app, upload the money. It takes a few days for it to clear, but upload whatever money you want, put it on whatever stock you want, yeah. and you might lose it all. And and anyone can do that. There's no no rule about because in with these publicly traded companies that you have to be accredited to invest in them um so i think it's a uh, a miss um in terms of the fact that that people are limited from being able to invest in in real estate uh, i think it, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense people people lose money you can lose you can put your money on cryptocurrency like and and lose like you can also make money, sure, but like, it's it's no to me it's no less uh, it's no more safe to invest in stocks or Bitcoin or whatever than it is to invest in real estate. And frankly, I think it's the opposite. I think it's safer to invest in real estate. Um, and maybe that's because some of these regulations exist. I don't I don't know. But but the reality is is that it does limit people. And so if you are accredited. You can invest in just about anything. You'll have access to the deals. Uh, like I said, 506B, you can have accredited investors and you can have up to 35 non-accredited investors within the deal. The, um, the uh, I guess, downside to the 506B is you can't publicly advertise. You can't market it. So everyone invest who invests in that you as the deal sponsor you have to already have a pre-existing relationship you also have to have a pre-existing relationship as the investor and so this is probably the place where people get in trouble because they're trying to raise capital mm -hmm. for a deal they get introduced to someone and they're like yeah sure come into this you know someone who's not accredited they get introduced to them and, and actually it doesn't matter in a 506b they can be accredited if you don't know them, they can't invest. You still need right. that relationship. So, and, and, 
yes, you still need the relationship even if they're accredited in a 506B. So um, you have to be very, very careful. That That's generally where people get in trouble is, is they, they sort of accidentally market a 506B deal or they bring someone in who, um, you know, friend of a friend, but technically it doesn't doesn't meet that qualification. So those are the biggest probably issues in compliance. 506C is great because you can market it. Anybody can come in like so I could have, you know, someone could go to our website today that we've never met and say, you know what, I, I love the, you know, I love the idea behind this fund, sign up and invest. Any, anyone can do it as long, but they have to be accredited. So we can't take any non-accredited investors in our fund, um, which is unfortunate because I have friends who are not accredited that would like to be a part of the fund and I can't bring them in. And, th and that would be, again, another area where you could get into trouble with compliance if you said, oh, this is my friend, nothing's ever gonna happen, I'm gonna let them invest in this deal. And, and if it's a 506C and they're not accredited. So it's just it's just sticking to those rules and, and they're pretty clearly defined and you can talk to an SEC attorney that'll tell you like this is this is how it goes like and and so it's not really hard to follow the, those rules um does that is that answer the question is there do you have follow-up to that rachel no but um no it answers the question i i actually appreciate how much you elaborate and 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 continue to answer the question on. in very detailed ways because um i think yeah. <laughs> and then um, another question uh, I have is, what about uh, interactions with an active investor? Uh, as a passive investor, how much, um, how other than reporting, how much interaction should I expect to have with an act, my active investor or manager? As, yeah, um, as much as you want, honestly. That's that's my perspective on it. Like, you're. Mm -hmm. You're going to get your monthly reporting, uh, and this is I, I, it's a great question because I think it's it's one of the um, big upsides if we're if we're comparing again going back to that like stock market comparison. You know, if you're investing in publicly traded companies, uh, I always use Apple as the example or Tesla, whatever. Like, so so if you invest in Tesla, like how many times are you going to get on the phone with Elon Musk? Zero. Like, you're not going to get anywhere close to Elon Musk. I. Think Tesla's a great company. I like. I did no problem investing them, but I'll never talk to Elon Musk about how things are going at at uh, you know Tesla. Yeah. And so with with these with these private placement memorandums, you should have the phone number, the email, direct contact to whoever that sponsor is, and like frankly, their team. Like, I you you know this is exactly why we're bringing you on in large part is like. That way we can make the investor experience even better, right? So if they they can always reach any of us and and ask, you know, questions, at, you know, what where do we stand? Hey, you sent out this report. I don't understand this number, or I don't understand like why did this number go up from last month or why did this number go down from last month? What is what is you know this particular metric mean? Why aren't we giving distributions right now? Why is this distribution different from last month? Like you can have direct access to ask those questions. So um, I think, you know, mm -hmm. if you're calling your sponsor every day to ask 
the same questions over and over again. They might not ask you to invest in the next deal, but the <laughs> but the the reality is you have that access. And if you're not here, you're not getting communication. You're not getting those reports, that sort of thing. Then you won't invest with that person the next time. And like the best possible thing that I, that I think that can happen for us, like as a as you know as Lark Capital, is that every investor we bring in invests in like continues to invest in our future deals and tells their friends right like that's the best possible thing that can happen because now we're we're creating you know sort of circles of impact and opportunity and and kind of spreading that out and so it's just uh i, I think you know making making things accessible that's why we redid the website I didn't I, I went through the website and I was like this is not user friendly enough. I don't I don't I want people to be able to go to our website and like have no challenges getting to the information that they that they want. So it it's just it will keep refining those things and and you know kind of building those platforms out so that we can make it easier and easier. We'll continue to do more things like this um, so that we can, you know, like I don't know. I'm fairly certain we never went live on anything in this, and it's been an hour. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why it didn't so. work, but we'll figure that out and we'll do it again. You know, we'll just we'll keep mm -hmm. uh, yeah. we'll keep fixing the <laughs> fixing the bugs and and um, making things work. So again, a bit of a long-winded answer, but like I think really I'm I'm and I'm realizing like the the investor experience is is probably the most important part right like that's why we're doing it. if i if i wanted to just do real estate alone i could just do that like i don't i it, that would and I, then i but this is uh, to me a way to kind of be uh impactful and and help help other people and and i guess circling back to the accredited versus the the non-accredited our fund is a 506c so people have to be accredited. However, it doesn't mean that we will only do 506C deals in the future. And so if people are listening to this or if you're talking to investors and they're not accredited, it doesn't mean that they can't be a part of it. And it's almost more important to have those conversations with them so we can establish pre-existing relationships for future 506B deals. Right, because not to get too deep into the weeds of, of structure, but like, for example, we could go and buy an asset as a, I'm going to say this and I, I will actually <laughs> clarify this question with my SEC attorney, but we could go out and buy a deal as a 506B transaction that our fund invests in as one of the investors. And so the, the that way we would actually have a 506B deal that we could bring non-accredited investors and then the fund is one of the accredited investors into it, right? So there the there's part of the reason why the fund sort of needs to be 506C is because we need to be able to market it. We need to because it's it's open for a period of time. And so if we didn't know someone 
at the beginning, like when the fund opened this summer or last summer of 2023, if we didn't know someone then, they couldn't get into the fund, even if they were accredited. So it, it, and this was a discussion that I had with my SEC attorney to sort of figure out like, does it need to be 506C? And he was like, yeah, if you're not, if you're not raising for a one time specific deal, that means that the only people that can invest in the deal would be people that I already knew. And so it wouldn't allow us to do what we want to do, which is just to go out to veterinary community and, and, and their circles and and bring this opportunity to them. So it, it would have uh, kind of um, handcuffed us from, from creating the impact that we want to. Make sense? Awesome. <clears throat> okay. Yes. Well, listen, I know, uh, I know song has a birthday party today to go to, so, or to put on or <laughs> some sort of, uh, celebration. So we've, we've, we've been an hour. I'll have Trampoline to figure park. out why. <laughs> What's that? Oh boy. I said What's a trampoline, oh but it's not oh, big. It's perfect. just our, bam, four people. <laughs> well, that'll be, that'll be a blast, but, but yeah, we'll, um, I'll figure out mm -hmm. why it didn't go live. We'll we'll do this. We'll this will be recorded as a podcast episode, so people can listen to it, and we can um, do another. Just do it again uh, at some point in the near future once we figure out the why it didn't go live. But um, I I would just finish with um, thank you both for for all that you do and and for being on here this morning, um, and also uh, for folks you know, listening, uh, please check out our website. As I mentioned, it's, it's been newly updated. I kind of love the way it's structured now. Pretty much anything you could want to know about our company is on there. Uh, you know, we, there's a blog, there's links to the podcast, there's the deal room. Um, really it's, it's all right there, all, all the social media links and things like that. Um, so that's, uh, larkcapital.com and then, you know, follow us on, on, social media at Lark Capital on Instagram and uh, it's just Jason Ballara on Facebook or LinkedIn. So wherever you would like to find us, it's pretty easy. And uh, thank you guys again. All right. Have a good one, everyone. Thanks, Jason. Bye. I am Dr. Jason Ballara and this is the Know Your Why podcast where we explore the why behind success. Every week, I meet with real estate investors, veterinary entrepreneurs, mindset coaches, authors, and fitness professionals to uncover their why and how it drives them on the winding road to success. What is your why?